Hello, I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels. And now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drrancats.com. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Kelly Berzik, pelvic floor physiotherapist extraordinaire. I'm not kidding you. Full disclosure, I count Kelly as a friend and refer all my patients to her clinic. My private practice office is also in her clinic, so I'll try my very best to be impartial and without bias in this interview. So, Kelly is a PhD prepared physiotherapist. Yes, that actually exists. She's an author, a researcher, and she's won multiple awards and accolades for her practice and mentorship of other physiotherapists. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much, Anne. It is a pleasure to be here. So, for those who don't know, and I truly believe that there are people who don't know, can you briefly describe the pelvic floor muscles and what they do? Oh, I would be happy to. You know that I look for every opportunity to talk about this muscle. It happens to be my favorite muscle of the body, actually. So this muscle is within our pelvis. So at the back, it inserts into our tailbone. In front, it inserts right into our pubic bones. And it fills the whole pelvis, the right and left sides of the pelvis, and joins them together. Because of its positioning, it has some very important functions that, like you mentioned, most people don't even know the muscle exists, so we don't give it the credit for the functions that it has. It wraps right around the urethra, so it allows the urethra to pass through it so that the bladder can empty through. And in the back, it wraps around the bowel. And in this way, it is able to contract and close the bowel or relax and open the bowel up, letting the bowel empty. It also supports the pelvic organs within the pelvis itself. So from below, it's going to support the bladder, the bowel, and in women, the uterus. So it also wraps right around the uterus, becoming the vagina, the introitus of the vagina. And because of how it is positioned, it plays an integral role in opening and closing the bladder, wrapping around the vagina. So that gives it a very important function in birthing babies for women and sexual function for women. But we have to remember men too have this muscle. So it plays a really critical function in sexuality for men too. And then from a more uh, practical perspective, for a, from a physio perspective, it plays a really significant role in core stabilization. So it connects the left and right sides of the pelvis so that as we do any movement of our legs, it passes the forces from our lower extremities to our trunk or any movement of our trunk down to our legs. So when it works properly, it seamlessly passes these forces through, playing a really critical role in support and core stabilization to our trunk and pelvis. And then 
interestingly, and people really often have no idea about this, it's working with our diaphragm. So it's actually assisting the diaphragm in breathing. And then finally, another function is its sump pump function. So contraction of the pelvic floor muscle helps to bring fresh blood flow to the area, to the whole genitalia and perineal area. So we want fresh and lots of good blood flow, bringing good oxygen delivery to the area to optimize health. So it really has a lot of very important functions. So it is amazing that so many people don't even know the muscle exists. The scary part of that is if you don't know it exists, you're not doing anything to build on its health, to keep it healthy. And it needs to have attention and exercise, just like every other muscle of the body. So thanks for asking. So it seems to me that this muscle is probably the most important muscle in the body. It's a multitasking muscle uh, and is so important to a topic that, of course, I am passionate about, sexuality. Before we get there, or perhaps even connected, what conditions damage this muscle and how did the muscle respond? And also, what are the consequences of damage to this muscle? Oh, another great question. And you know, before I answer that, I just want to comment because I think I heard you say it's the most important muscle of the body. And the reason I want to bring attention to that is because one time, you know, I'm a bit of a nervous speaker and at a presentation, I said exactly that. What I had meant to say is that it's my favorite muscle of the body, but I did say it's the most important muscle of the body. And a cardiologist in the audience called me on it. And, um, you know, he said, I I personally think that the heart muscle might be the most important one. So I said, you know, great point. And I love that you brought it up. But I tell you, if this muscle is the one that's keeping you from leaking bladder and bowel contents right now here in the audience, and later tonight, it's the one that brings you home and gets you to orgasm. What do you think? Which one's more important? So we kindly agreed that both of our muscles happen to be incredibly important. So I now I'm very careful to say it's my favorite muscle of the body, but it is a very important muscle. So to get back to your question, and uh, thanks for letting me go off track. I'm just going to interrupt you a minute. Yeah. So, as you know, and people listening to this will detect an accent, but I'm originally from South Africa, mm-hmm. where the very first heart transplant took place in the 1960s. And the heart surgeon who did the surgery is Dr. Christian Barnard. Uh, he's no longer with us. And he used to famously say to medical and nursing students who he taught, the heart is but a pump. <laughs> and the pelvic floor muscle too is a pump. So, <laughs> oh, that was a good story. I love that. So, to go back to your question, so what conditions can disrupt or damage these muscles? And then what are the consequences? You know, some of the things, the challenges that are put on this muscle can be a dramatic impact that causes damage, whereas others are those chronic micro traumas over time that injure the muscle. So, Probably the most commonly thought of injury to the muscle is going to be pregnancy and vaginal delivery, where at times we can even cause tearing directly into the muscle or cutting is necessary to the muscle. So those would be, you know, a direct impact, an, an acute injury to the muscle. But even with that, I want to really point out that this muscle is meant to have babies. It is meant to go through pregnancy. That is one of its functions. The issue at hand is the fact that 
if we didn't prepare it for this marathon ahead of it, all through pregnancy, it has to absorb the new weight and the changes in ligamentous support through pregnancy, which we want. We want hormones to decrease the resiliency of the ligament and allow it to stretch out so the pelvis can open and work toward accommodating the size of the baby and later birthing the baby. The muscles have to take up the slack of what the ligaments aren't doing during this period. And the pelvic floor muscle is one of the core, really critical muscles during this period of time. So if we prepare it for this marathon and then eventually birthing and laboring, it is ready for it and it can step up to this challenge. It's when we didn't prepare it for it that it gets into trouble. And I I often tell patients, think about if you were to decide to run a marathon tomorrow and you didn't exercise and prepare it, would you be surprised if you tore a muscle or injured a muscle? Probably not. So why then don't we put that same philosophy and that same dedication to this critical time? I also want to point out things, little things that can cause damage to it over time in the washroom. So chronically straining with constipation or trying to push and bear down when trying to empty our bladder. Those are really poor biomechanical techniques when toileting. And over time, they can really hurt the muscle. There are also more unexpected things, such as people who play in high-impact sport. Research shows us they can hurt their muscle if the muscle wasn't prepared for those demands. Again, if prepared, it should be able to really roll with it and handle those demands. Also things, because we know the pelvic floor muscle is working with the diaphragm, things that strain our respiration. So asthmatics or smoking can bear trauma to the pelvic floor muscle. Or even when we see people who play wind instruments, sometimes if they have a a respiratory demand that the pelvic floor muscle itself is actually impacted. For example, flautists tend to have a very controlled breathing pattern and they often will demonstrate a hypertonic pelvic floor muscle. So over time, it has caused a raise in tone to the pelvic floor muscle. It's quite tight. And as a result, they would be more, have a tendency toward having issues with pelvic pain, sexual dysfunction, or problems with elimination, constipation, for example. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, a trumpet player tends to blow out their pelvic floor muscle. So they would be at a higher risk of having issues with bladder or bowel incontinence, as an example. So it's really critical that we even look at the little things in life that could play a role in the pelvic floor muscle. I also want to bring attention to the fact that people who deal with other organ pain, pelvic organ pain, such as bladder pain, I'm thinking of our interstitial cystitis patients, bowel pain, our irritable bowel syndrome patients, or uterine pain, endometriosis, or even those that have had pain with chronic yeast infections or urinary tract infections, they tend to develop a painful posture and they clench their pelvic floor muscle. Even our patients that have leakage issues, they tend to start clenching their pelvic floor muscle. Now, the ones with pain issues, it's often a subconscious impact that they have. They clench their muscle. They want to support that hurting organ. And as a result, 
They deprive the pelvic floor muscle of the oxygen delivery and blood flow that it needs. They may even start to cause a brittleness or a breakage in muscle fibers. So they end up over time hurting their muscle and have more problems because of it. So it's really critical that any woman that has any emotional stress is looking after their pelvic floor muscle. And right now with the stresses that we're all dealing with regarded the pandemic around the world, we're seeing high levels of pelvic pain, women having problems that they didn't have prior to the pandemic, or if they had problems, they're now being exacerbated by their anxiety levels that they're seeing. On top of that, patients that have had any history of abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, definitely are going to have risk to the muscle itself. And then those that have never done anything for their muscle, they just ignore the muscle. They've neglected it because they didn't even know it existed. How do we expect them to do something for that muscle? So we need women and all people to know about this muscle and what they need to do for themselves. And then there's one more factor that can be damaging to the muscle that I want to bring attention to, and that's incorrect exercise prescription. So for those people that have been doing their exercises, but doing them incorrectly, which we unfortunately know is a common thing, they could be hurting their muscle. And they have all of the best intentions of exercising. And we want to make sure that they're getting only the best from all of that exercise that they're putting forth. That's a little segue for me. So Ah. Mm -hmm. let's talk about pelvic floor exercise, which a lot of people call Kegel exercises, like many other things in the medical world. You know, men from way back then get to name all kinds of things. And I think we're getting away from that. And I certainly don't talk about Kegel exercises uh, with my patients. I talk about pelvic floor exercises because why give credit to somebody who, who knows what on earth he did? So can you explain exactly what are Kegel exercises and how can you do them wrong or right? Oh, Now, isn't that the million-dollar question right there? That is an excellent question, and you're right. It comes from the work of Dr. Arnold Kegel in the 40s, and he did a wonderful thing by bringing attention to this muscle that it actually exists and it needs to be exercised. But in time, it sort of has morphed, and we've seen very poor information on the Internet. We've, We've seen people being told, just do your Kegel exercises, do them 200 times a day, and research tells us people don't even know what that means. They try very hard to complete this advice, but they often erroneously contract the wrong muscle or, and this is the part that scares me the most, they exercise an injured muscle that was never meant to be exercised at that point. So as a physio, we are very pro and supportive of being active and exercising all muscles. But if a muscle's injured, Exercising a muscle can be a bad thing to do. So we need to have this muscle assessed by a qualified practitioner to make sure that it is ready for exercise. And then truly exercise is medicine. So the idea that you can get exercise advice just willy-nilly is really a scary thought to us. It is based on scientific principles, proper assessment, and then the, the physiotherapist for the pelvic floor muscle in this case is going to determine what the dosage is of that exercise prescription. 
just like medicine. You don't know what you should be doing for this muscle. So a proper assessment to first determine that this muscle is safe for exercise, a proper dosage and prescription determined on what the assessment findings were. If this muscle is hypertonic, as an example, we may need to treat the muscle and work on relaxation techniques before it's ever even safe to be exercised. And then depending on what the assessment findings show us, we're going to determine the proper prescription for you. We might be looking at focusing on fast twitch muscle fibers, slow twitch muscle fibers. Those are different things that need to be exercised exercise differently as well. We don't want to over fatigue a muscle because we could get DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness, just like every other muscle in the body. And we really don't want that in the vagina or in the rectum. So we're going to dose it appropriately for you to make sure that the exercise is going to get the best results that you deserve. And then finally, we need to verify that you're completing them correctly, that this is in perfect technique, that you're not just clenching your bum cheeks and your glutes muscles are getting a good workout, which is fine. You'll have a great looking butt, but it isn't going to be helping you for what the goal is of that exercise. Bladder control, bowel control, sexual function, the good health overall of the pelvic floor muscle. Once again, a lovely segue. Thank you. You'd think we'd practice this. So, <laughs> so if I was to come to your clinic with a complaint, let's just say pain with intercourse, Mm-hmm. What could I expect to happen? You know, I think this really is a kind of black box for people. They don't know what to expect. You know, I know in my practice uh, with sexuality counseling, sometimes people think the most alarming things, like they have to have sex in front of me while I watch. So I think beyond even misinformation, I think there's a lot of ignorance about what happens at a consultation for someone with, for example, pain with intercourse. What can they expect at your clinic? Oh, Thank you for asking. Okay. And you know, we get a lot of phone calls and questions about this too, because when somebody is advised to come to pelvic floor physiotherapy or referred, they often are quite surprised that physiotherapy has anything to do with this. And I'm kind of glad that they question it because the truth is most of us have no education in this during our physio schooling. So for most places, and certainly in our geographical location and most of Canada, we don't have any education at the undergraduate level and it's postgraduate training specific to pelvic floor physiotherapy that allows us to do an internal vaginal or rectal examination. So it's important that you research who you're going to see, make sure that they have the qualifications that are important to you and then expect a long appointment when you come to to our clinic because there's so much education around this and we want to really understand everything that is going on on from all aspects of the pelvic floor muscle, it's going to take a lot of time. So usually we book about an hour, 15 minutes, an hour and a half, and we do an extremely thorough history taking. We want to know everything about your bladder, your bowel, your sexual function, and of course your pain, the pain that brought you here. Now, Research shows us that your bladder and bowel health play a very important role on your sexual function, and that's often overlooked. So we need to know everything that's going on. For women, we want to know your obstetrical and gynecological history. We're even going to be asking things about um, 
dietary and lifestyle habits. And while you might be surprised, we're going to also ask about your toileting habits quite deeply, actually. We want to know what brings on the pain, what eases the pain. And then we want you to have a full understanding of why we're asking these questions and how the pelvic floor muscle ties all these organs together and how it plays such an important role in sex. So like I was talking about earlier, the pelvic floor muscle plays a role right from arousal, right at the get-go. So the starting a feeling of being aroused, that's all going to be relying on good blood flow to the area, good blood flow to the genitalia and to the pelvic floor muscle, good oxygen delivery. And now as we build through arousal for women, if the muscle is too hypertonic, it actually can interfere with any penetration whatsoever. So if you force penetration on a partially closed opening, you're going to create more of a pain cycle. So we have to work and address that and find out what's going on in your particular instance. Is it problems right on entry or is it a problem later on with thrusting as an example, or is it both? So we're going to need to address all of that. And then finally, the pelvic floor muscle works right up into orgasm. So to have a great orgasm, you're going to have to have a great pelvic floor muscle. So we need to look at that. Actually, there's a reason for that old adage, an orgasm orgasm a day keeps the pelvic floor physiotherapist away. It doesn't come from nowhere. <laughs> so during an assessment, we're going to be looking at all of the things that can impact the pelvic floor muscle and make sure that you're comfortable understanding the connection there so that you can realize how much of a role you yourself play in the sexual activity and pain or painless intercourse. And that gives you a lot of control in this. We really have a big role in this. If we're anxious and nervous about this, we're going to really feed into that bad loop to the pelvic floor muscle and tighten up. At this point in the assessment, we're going to ask for your informed consent to do an internal examination via rectum or vagina. Often with women, we'll start uh, vaginally and see if, if a rectal assessment is needed. Most of the time, we can get what we need from a vaginal assessment. But again, we would educate you on what we're going to be asking and whether you're comfortable with this. You can bring an advocate into the room with you if you'd like. Absolutely. And sometimes you don't want that. It's really up to the patient's preference. And that's really critical because we need you to feel comfortable and relaxed. Then we're going to be doing a, a digital examination. We're assessing the pelvic floor muscle itself, the ligaments of the pelvic floor. And on the muscle, we're going to look for tone issues or myofascial trigger points and determine what's going on with that muscle. And from that, we're going to work on the goals. We're going to find out what's going on and decide what treatment is needed or indicated for this, which might include manual therapy. We might need to do myofascial trigger point release on the muscle, just like we would any other muscle of the body that had problems, soft tissue massage, or perhaps we need something a little bit more modalities such as cold laser therapy or muscle stimulation or even acupuncture or dry needling might be appropriate for some patients. I'm not saying we typically would needle the pelvic floor muscle. Very often it's at the sacral, the low back area that we can uh, needle the nerves that are supplying the pelvic floor muscle to decrease pain or normalize tone, things like that. 
at Nova, we're also really excited to have added an ultrasound imaging machine. So that's the ultrasound uh, you're thinking of when you're pregnant and you want to see the baby. Now, we're not, that is not within our scope of practice. We would never be advising on anything to do with baby. That's outside of our practice. But we use ultrasound imaging to look at muscle and to rehab the muscle. So we can actually see the pelvic floor muscle as it's moving and show you what your muscle looks like. Or if there's a problem with the abdominal wall, it's a hard concept sometimes for people to contract their pelvic floor muscle or to contract their obliques or relax one muscle as they contract the other muscle. So we now have this imaging ability to show patients, this is what's happening when you contract. And now you can see why this is incorrect, or this is a perfect technique, or even more, I think one of the things that surprised me was how clearly we can see health of the muscle. So we can now objectively measure thickness of muscle. So we can identify if there's atrophy of the muscle or hypertrophy of a muscle, if there's a muscle imbalance. If we want these two muscles to be at the same ratio, a one-to-one ratio, we may have to build up this muscle, for example, if it's undertoned, or how much blood flow or oxygen delivery is to the muscle, how much adipose post is in the muscle itself. So we can see fatty infiltrates versus very healthy muscle tone. So it gives us a visualization that I find personally motivating for why I need to exercise more. And so we're going to talk about all of these options that are available to you. Most likely, we're also going to talk about different lifestyle suggestions, toileting suggestions, behavioral changes and dietary factors for better bladder and bowel health to help their sexual function and see what's right for you. And then once we get into the actual treatment of the muscle and we start to see an impact, hopefully there's improvement in the muscle from the treatment, then we typically talk to our patients about whether or not they want to bring their partner in with them. And that's really a critical factor for many people. It's some, it's not appropriate, and that's totally fine. We respect whatever is right for the patient. But once we have a good handle on what's helpful to the muscle and what's dangerous for the muscle, then if the patient is comfortable bringing their partner in, then we love to add that into treatment because my goodness, what better opportunity do we have twofold? One, their partner can actually treat the muscle just before they become sexually active. So they have the perfect timing to, to look at tools to downtrain and relax the muscle just before entry and intercourse. As well, it's really critical to bring the partner into play because they've had that fear and that anxiety too of bringing pain to their partner. So if they can physically help their partner right as they're starting to become sexually active, it really empowers both of them and brings a comfort level to getting comfortable with touching and really um, being a part of helping each other instead of that cyclical role of hurting and pain during intercourse. And you know, the last thing I want to make sure to mention with this, we are half the job. So research shows us how important physical treatment to the muscle is, but the psychological, emotional sequelae is just as important. So we really have a gift in being able to work with you, Anne, for all these years and being able to send patients to you so you can talk to them individually or as a couple so they can work through the emotional issues so that physical and emotional partnership 
is really critical in keeping us from working on an uphill battle, basically, with patients. So I want to thank you for everything that you do for these patients. It takes a village, right? <laughs> Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about women. Let's talk a little bit about men. Do yeah, men sure. come for pelvic floor physiotherapy? And if so, why? And is the management or assessment any different? Oh, well, thank you again for asking that. I love that. We actually at the clinic definitely see men. We actually see children as well for bedwetting or difficulty with bladder and bowel control as kids. So you have to remember, we all have a pelvic floor muscle. So absolutely everybody needs to have care if they're having problems with that area. Now with men, we often see them related to prostate issues but not always. We can see young men that have a perfect prostate, never uh, had any concern with their prostate, and they're having problems with pelvic pain or erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction, whatever, whatever the case is, they would be appropriate for care. But going back to our prostate population, research really supports the importance of being proactive when it comes to prostate surgery, whether it's for cancer or enlargement, if we can get in there and help gentlemen know what they need to do to prepare for the surgery, the outcomes are much better. The surgical outcomes are much better. So they're always concerned about the incontinence factors or the sexual dysfunction factors post-surgical because those are real things to be considered. But if they go in there again with a healthy pelvic floor muscle, just like when we talked about for women with going into pregnancy and labor, the healthier the muscle, the better oxygen delivery to the area, the healthier the muscle itself, the better they know how to use the muscle after surgery. So if we're looking at our prostate surgery patients, the surgeons have to go in there and deal with whatever the problem is. So if it's a cancer patient, they're going to be looking at primarily ensuring that the cancer's been dealt with. That is what they have to do. As a result, the nerves in that area could be traumatized. They may even have to be cut, but that's not typically the case. They usually, surgeons are always trying to to spare the nerves, whatever trauma they possibly can. But just working in that area can sometimes damage or injure the area. It might be temporary, whatever the case is. If we can teach gentlemen how to activate their pelvic floor muscle, they're that much better equipped post-surgery to work on getting a better closure over their bladder or getting better health into the area to improve sexual function. And the research supports this. So we absolutely see gentlemen for care at all different walks of life, different ages, and for different reasons. And really our approach to care is similar in that it is just muscle we're dealing with. But for men, we're of course going to be accessing the muscle from a rectal approach. And we work very hard to educate gentlemen ahead of time with this so that they're very comfortable in giving us consent to assess the area when they're ready. As you know, I send a lot of my male patients who are going to have prostate cancer surgery, and I can tell you that uh, they always tell me that the physiotherapists at your clinic are so gentle, and that, really does, and that really does make a difference. And for those who are perhaps a little reluctant, you know, that's something that I reinforce with them 
as well. Aww, that these you. are mostly young women at your clinic. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> who are very gentle and have small hands. So, <laughs> Thank you. We do hear that a lot. <laughs> Perhaps my last question is something that you know I have an issue with, and that is the question of the hover. So, oh, the hover, yes. So many of my female friends and acquaintances go to great lengths to avoid sitting on the toilet seat when they go to a public washroom or restroom. It's called different things based on where you live. So they hover. Uh, sometimes in high heels, and I think it's probably a miracle that nobody falls over and perhaps <laughs> lands on the, the floor or even worse, in the toilet itself. So they hover. I tell them, and, and I come from a public health background where it's really clear, you're not going to catch anything from a toilet seat. If you have intact skin, that is your body's first line of defense. And who's going to sit on a toilet seat that has got blood or other things on it. So I think the health risks are minimal or non-existent from actually sitting on the toilet seat, but I think there are health risks associated with hovering. So let's talk about hovering and perhaps we can change some minds. Oh, I love this conversation because you are so right. I remember hearing from young teenagers that in schools, they were told to never touch a toilet seat and they were encouraged to hover and it became a peer thing. I know I have actually had young ladies present for a pelvic pain and sexual dysfunction who are very proud of the fact that they hover and they can even have a bowel movement in hovering. They get so good at it. So that just gives you an idea of how for how long that they're doing it. And while I understand it does take quite a talent to make this happen, absolutely, as a pelvic floor physiotherapist, we do not want this. So if you understand how the pelvic floor muscle works with the other muscles in the trunk and the legs, we want to encourage proper usage and proper reflexive action so that when we do need to use our abdominal muscles and our leg muscles for anything like doing a sit-up or going from sit to stand, we want our pelvic floor muscle to contract and close off the bladder and the bowel so nothing leaks out. So now here, what we're doing is getting into this hovering position, and that's different than squatting. I want to be clear, that's not the, the squat that they do in other parts of the world where they fully bend down. This is that hovering over the toilet seat where your legs start to shake and your abdomen starts to shake, and it's really a hard position to maintain. And now by a natural reflex is our pelvic floor muscle to engage and close the rectal and, and bladder opening. But your intention is to pee. So now you have to force the urine through a closed or partially closed opening and your abdominal muscles will win. You will get very, very good at forcing the urine through a partially closed hole. And you can only imagine that over time that will cause a lot of trauma to the pelvic floor muscle, leading to many different pelvic floor dysfunctions and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. So it really is in poor taste. And I want to reassure you that if you've done it a couple times, that's not going to cause a problem. It's the habit of doing it. We really do not want to force urine through a, a partially closed hole or, or have a bowel movement through a partially closed opening. So instead, we take a lot of time to discuss proper toileting biomechanics and how important this really is. So when you go into a public washroom, 
please do whatever you need to be comfy. Wipe the seat, put toilet paper down, whatever it takes, but then sit down, relax your pelvic floor muscle, take a breather, you've earned it, and now relax and let the pee come out. Peeing should be passive. It should not be work. And also, Please don't do your pelvic floor muscle exercises while you're peeing. That is very bad form and definitely interfering with the normal reflex messages being sent between the pelvic floor muscle and the bladder muscle. So that's the time to relax. Let it go. Breathe. Such good advice. Women of the world, do not hover. I really think we should have that on the back of the door in public washrooms, right? Don't hover or else you have to go and see Kelly and her physiotherapists. Exactly. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kelly. So much to take in. So much to learn. I've learned a whole lot and I want to thank you. So, That's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling with two L's and Anne with an E.